As we move towards bringing children back to school, we must ask who was worst affected by the pandemic and why. Decoding Exclusion, an interview series by the Vithi Center for Legal Policy, aims to discuss the various facets of the problem of exclusion in education in India. With a range of experts in the field of law, policy and education, we examine evidence on new sites of exclusion and ways in which we can support children and their households as we bring them back to school. Welcome to Vidhi's Decoding Exclusion, an interview series where we break down the various facets of exclusion from mainstream education in India. I'm Nisha, and I lead the Inclusive Education Vertical at the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy, and in today's episode, I'm in conversation with Lina Bhattacharya. Lina holds a PhD in Economics from the Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research and has worked in the areas of education, migration, and education technology. In today's conversation, we discuss the unique challenges and complexities involved in access to education for children from households engaged in short-term migration. We discuss in some detail about models of seasonal hostels, community living arrangements that are made available for children to stay in their source villages when their parents migrate. And we also focus on some models run in the states of Orissa and Maharashtra specifically. We also discuss the challenges that teachers and schools face in admitting and including children of short-term migrants. Building on extensive field research with migrant households across the country, Lina provides much insight on the experiences of these households in how they choose to migrate and how they navigate keeping their children in school. The conversation was extremely insightful for me and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Lina, for being here with us today. Um, we are very happy that you could join us for this conversation and uh, during the course of this discussion the main areas that we are really excited to understand from you one is of course a little bit about the kind of research that you've done in the space of um, children and their access to education in india uh, you've specifically worked a lot on um, children from specific minority groups um, including children from migrant households as well as a little bit on gender if i'm not wrong um, and uh, Vidhi, over the course of the last two and a half years, we've tried to do a lot of sort of evidence generation um, on how children have access to education um, and especially children from different vulnerable backgrounds uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So um, I think it'll be extremely beneficial for our audience to hear from more academics and more researchers who have done a lot a lot more uh, than, than we've been able to do over, the, over this course. Um, but okay, so just to get started, um, you know, uh, over the course of uh, specifically COVID-19, there are a few of your research papers that have come out um, that have spoken a little bit about access to education for marginalized communities. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what that work entailed and what were some of the key findings? Sure. So, uh, I think a lot of papers did come out during COVID-19. A lot of it focused on the technology aspect of it. Although in the news media, you would see that the migrants had a major focus, right? Because they got stranded in one part of the country and then couldn't go back to the other part. But again, what I've observed personally is once they did go back to the places, the academic focus was still away from the migrants, the short-term migrants, moving on to the other parts. Uh, and as you mentioned, I had started some work with the children from short-term migrant families and uh, yeah we could discuss about it more and also thank you so much for inviting me here great um okay yeah that that makes sense so we can uh, jump straight into specifically the vulnerability of migrant children as you've rightly pointed out i think 
um, at least for myself personally as a researcher, I've even though I've been extremely interested to understand the sort of challenges that migrant children face in access to education, um, I've often refrained from it because it is a very complex phenomenon. Uh, how migration in our country happens to begin with, um, and then how you know children and households sort of navigate um, short-term migration patterns and access to schooling and maybe shifting from school to school as well. Um, so you know, even prior to the pandemic, this has been a problem. So could you tell us a little bit about um, your sort of understanding of how short-term migration actually affects educational access? Sure, Nisha. And as you mentioned, it is a very complex phenomenon. And hence, you will see in research, there's a lot of focus on the migrants themselves, the adults who are out-migrating, while the other members of the family kind of get left behind because uh, their children and the factor uh, the factor is the parents are going and also coming back so let me actually break it down what short-term migration means right uh, so what i'm talking about here is internal short-term migration in india so what happens is these are done mostly by families from a very low income group mm -hmm. okay and what happens is a lot of them they do not have their own land so during monsoon they might be finding some work in someone else's land and some means of survival. But as soon as monsoon ends, they do not have anything to do in the villages. Yet they need some amount of money to just survive, right? Yeah. So what happens then is these people out-migrate to another destination where they can get some work for the six to eight months before the next monsoon begins. Mm -hmm. Hence the term short-term migration because they go and again they come back to the source villages. Because it's a circular loop, uh, and you know, like two times in a year, you'll actually find them in the uh, original village. Mm -hmm. Hence, a lot of discourse kind of looks beyond them. But it's a good time to say that it's not a small group that we are talking about. Uh, so National Sample Survey Organization's uh, reports in 2013, so Situation Assessment Survey, estimates that there are over 10 million households who have at least one short-term migrant member in the family. Right. And yet you'll see this paradox that, you know, there are... 10 million in one side and such less focus in research on the other side. One reason is, as you mentioned, is very complex. Second is the dearth of data around these people so that, you know, a lot of academics work, the quantitative academics, they work with it. Yeah. And you will see that it's not there so easily. And hence the discourse remains limited and focuses on some other groups. So in the way that, um, you know, you mentioned that like a lot of families, you have a single member of the household uh, who might be the main, um, you know, migrant from that household, right? But the rest of the family sometimes migrate with or sometimes stay back in the source village. So in terms of access to education for a child in this kind of household, um, do you find that they usually are within the source village? What are the circumstances in which they do end up migrating with family members? So let me break it down again. Let's say there's a village. There is a group that will migrate and a group that will not migrate. Yeah. So for the group that is not migrating, fine, the children are staying back with their parents, going to the same school in the same environment. Mm -hmm. For the group that is migrating, they have a choice. Either they take the child with them or they leave the child behind. Right. Now, if I think of where exactly can I leave the child behind? So it's interesting to see that the national policies of education, for example, the Right to Education Act or Sarva Siksha Abhiyan, they have recognized the fact that there is this major challenge faced by the subgroup of children. 
and they have mentioned strategies so that their education rights can be protected for example one such strategy is operating seasonal hostels in the villages of origin now to give you an idea of what is the seasonal hostel and the first thing to tell you is it's not a separate building per se that you know it's only operated for 6 months and the building remains closed imagine a government school and imagine uh, two rooms in that government school so in the 6 to 8 months of migration there are two rooms one is left for the boys one is left for the girls and they are transformed into seasonal hostels so there are groups of children who are staying in the hostels inside the school campus protected okay. by that boundary so that okay. is a seasonal hostel because the moment we say seasonal hostel it might sound very different right like mm. the other hostels so imagine you stay in the school for 6 to 8 months and as soon as your parents come back the hostels are closed again they're dismantled and they're brought back into regular school classrooms right and so the children can stay there so this is an uh, this is a model that is followed in odisha Mm, okay. okay. So now the parents in Odisha they have a choice of leaving the children in hostels mm-hmm. or leaving the child with some relative that may ha- uh, they might have in the village, right? Or to take the child with them. Right. Now, as you rightly asked, how do I decide? This is a super complex question to answer. Okay. Uh, one reason that has been commonly given in the literature and I also observed from the field surveys. So six to fourteen year old children are eligible to stay in the seasonal hostels. but imagine a 6 year old staying behind without the parents for many months i met a kid there are kids who stay but it becomes very difficult for the child for the caregivers and the parents however over the time the kids kind of pick up and they start enjoying the fact that they will be staying with their friends in this campus and i've met older kids who have stayed in the camp only uh, in the seasonal hostel and uh, they were saying that look i miss the seasonal hostels because when i stayed in the hostels they have this uh, fixed timetable of what they need to do throughout the day and one of which is going to school which is essentially moving to the next classroom right getting ready and moving to the next classroom uh, but if you are staying outside of the seasonal hostels you might be doing household work which you are not doing when you are inside the hostel so there are kids who told me that look when i was outside i had to take the animals out and i was doing this work and that work and you know i was not able to focus as much so i wish the hostels could have been done at least till 18 or till we finish school for the whole extent and not just under rte until age of 14 so there are young very young kids who are taken now imagine you have two very young kids okay and you are a migrant there is a chance that you might take a third like your third older kid with you who was eligible to stay but you take this kid because the kid can take care of the younger kids okay that's one then there are parents who are a little scared to leave uh, adolescent girls behind because they don't know what's going to happen here although i must tell you that it's very unsafe for them there as well because the pa- it's not like the parents are there with them throughout the day so it's very complex on who is taken and who is left behind but from what i have seen a trustworthy hostel and these are village schools right so you know who the principal is the teachers are the school management committee and there are people recruited from the village as caretakers and cooks in the seasonal hostel okay so you also know who the caretakers and cooks are so if there is trust the parents still leave the children behind because they know that at least the children in hostels they can go to the same school they're in the same familiar environment and things work so this is for odisha in maharashtra so 
anyone can open seasonal hostels right so maharashtra started opening as well they figured that the hostels were open but the children were not willing to stay like the parents were not willing to leave the children behind so they dug deeper and they found that there were too many kids for that room okay so there was no comfort and this is one maybe semi functional toilet and the drinking water is a problem so they moved on to an alternate mode which was called the community uh, i mean an alternate living arrangement in the community so they figured that look parents might be migrating the house is not so the house is still there and the house is the child's comfort zone like they have their own arrangement there so let the parents go out the kids can stay in the uh, villages they will get all their food in the school it's not like they are burdening someone else or someone of the relative right and uh, so they hence move to the community mode okay of living arrangement so here uh, but then if i have to group it the children who are staying in the source villages while their parents are away they can still go to the same school and attend classes children who have migrated now they come across a different horizon there one reason being that parents do not go to the same place every year so every year you're going to a newer place figuring right. out what's there around you they uh, for odisha a lot of it happens a migration happens in andhra pradesh mm-hmm. so a lot of children mentioned that you know the language of instruction yeah. had changed yeah. right so there was a government school by the way the parents were very happy because they told me they got eggs they got bags they got uniform so with the utilities and with the things that they received they were happy mm. but uh, they didn't understand the language really but now there is a, a memorandum of understanding between odisha and andhra pradesh right there is also a school there are classrooms with odia teachers there right right so there is a chance that the migrants might move to a place where they might mm. find a school with odia teachers mm. there are also work site schools i found this very interesting this i didn't know exactly how it was done i came to know when i was doing my field work in uh, rural odisha in 2019 so this is pre pandemic mm. you were saying that while the migrant workers are recruited for work hmm. if there's an educated migrant worker who has qualified board examination and cleared it they might take that person as a teacher okay. or once the people move to the destination area they might just choose one and say you are the teacher okay so what that person is supposed to do is maintain record of all the kids there hmm. and then uh, some of the women come calling in the morning to get all the kids to like a makeshift room which is right. called a school i figured not a lot of learning was happening from the answers that the kids were telling me like they didn't remember mm-hmm. anything that happened they just remember sitting in the room eating mm-hmm. maybe so yeah uh, this is a kind of thing that they might have access to some education there in the destination area mm-hmm. but a lot of them mentioned that they were just taking care of younger siblings or cooking right. and the last part was i asked that were you working mm-hmm. so here uh the report i think was much lower than maybe true okay. because the parents were mentioning that they were not working they were just helping us because they were wasting their time so we were just right. engaging them in something right so but engaging them in brick making is essentially they were doing it but yeah. uh, i think the if i go back to the field again in the near future i'll ask the question very differently now that i yeah. know that they might be thinking of a more utility of their time otherwise they're just wasting in playing right right the kind yeah. of thing that you might capture from sort of time news data rather than you know asking the question directly exactly. right yeah 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 because they might perceive it like no 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 one works yeah but you can't do it they were just helping us
Right. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, the, okay. So this is really interesting because both these models that you've mentioned, uh, you know, the, the sort of residential hostels and the source village, um, as well as these, uh, the community living thing as well. Um, a lot of this is stuff that I have not heard of before because I haven't worked in this space specifically. Um, but I think you brought up a really important point that for younger children, um, especially in maybe the pre-primary, primary age groups where parents are most likely not going to be comfortable leaving them alone um, and shifting to another village. Uh, I think there's a, you know, you're, you're sort of suggesting that maybe the disruption that happens uh, for migrant children in their foundational years is much higher than for maybe the older children, right? Um, and I think that that's a really important point for us to um, sort of make note of, because especially as we're moving towards the sort of formalization of these foundational years, um, maybe that's an area that we really need to um, focus on when it comes to migrant children and ensuring, you know, that there's less disruption. Um, we had actually done a study sometime in 2020 or 21, um, where again in Maharashtra, so Bombay specifically, we were speaking to these um, uh, EC centers over there, the Balwadis in uh, Bombay City. And a lot of, you know, they, they sort of mentioned to us, the NGOs that were running these Balwadis, that when migrant children come in, they sometimes don't, as in they accept them and they're admitted in the school, but they come sometime during the middle of the year, right? Um, and these are very young children. So arguably, like some teachers would say, it's not so hard to sort of get them to maybe not catch up, but at least like get a little bit in tune with what's happening and teach them something while they're there but a lot of other teachers said okay I admit them in my classroom they're there but I can't give them any special attention because they don't know what happened before and then they're going to um, leave very soon so I don't really you know I don't know how to sort of teach these children they're just in my classroom so is this kind of experience something that you've come across as well? It's a very interesting point Nisha so as you mentioned, and I'll just go back a little in history and tell you that there were studies in the early 2000s in West Bengal, mm -hmm. uh, where they found that the principals were actually telling that, you know, don't come to our schools because when you leave, it's shown as a dropout. Yeah. Because we can't account for where the kid went. Right. Which is very, very important in this context because everyone's trying to do the best, but then the principal was becoming answerable. But mm. the principal just wanted to do like the normal thing by letting the kids enter. Mm. But I think in 2010, after RT, after it was formalized, it look whoever comes in, whenever you just take them in without questions. Mm -hmm. So this happened. But you are absolutely right. There were teachers who were saying every year the group of kids change as well. Like, yeah, it's there is no continuity. I have to start from scratch. So sometimes the children were saying they do sit in the classrooms. They try to follow what's happening. If it's the mm. same language, they understand. If it's not the same language, it's a maybe sit there for the time of the school, you know, like mm. have a meal and then come back. Mm -hmm. But you were right. So I think the alternate model where there are teachers, Odia teachers going to Andhra Pradesh now, so that at least the kids understand the language. But in a lot of cases, the kids responded that there was one classroom with two teachers and mm -hmm. all the kids were put together in that classroom. Right. right. Then there are two teachers who are just doing some basics or not doing at all. And mm -hmm. they couldn't recall what happened. I spoke to the a bit older kids. They said that they would just come and write ABCD because there were many kids. Mm -hmm. But then that's the extent to which we did. And I asked that, can you show me a book, a notebook of what happened? So this kid responded, no, I gave it to someone before I came. <laughs> Okay. Said, okay. <laughs> then that's the conversation ends here. But then right. this is the thing I figured, as you rightly mentioned, that the teachers are also in two minds, right? What to do yeah. with this kid who, as you rightly mentioned, will leave again. Mm 
mm. and might not come back the next year mm. uh, so it's troublesome there so the other thing that's mentioned in the policy in the uh, sarvasik shavyan framework is getting remote volunteer teacher like who can come with you to the source okay teach you and then again you can go back together so i think what's close is getting the migrant member to teach and go back but this as you understand these are not like trained teachers right this oh, one yeah. person who wanted to work who is just yeah. made responsible for the kids yeah. and for teaching kids which is not easy in any which way Mm. so yeah this is a problem and as you rightly mentioned the younger kids were definitely taken there like below 6 yeah. is a brunt of it so they have to sometimes the parents wait till they are 6 so that they can be left behind because a lot of parents actually want their children to continue learning and to get out of this because it's very very hard work for extremely long hours yeah like it's insane sure. the number of hours they work so they want and a lot of Uh, a little older when i say older maybe late 30s or early 40s mm-hmm. people told me that we are not going anymore because we don't have the stamina to work anymore right right okay and there uh, and this is just work hours it's extremely hard and extremely long mm. and then there are they face a lot of challenges i'll give you one instance uh, during survey i was told that uh, we had a kid of your age who we lost while he was working there and when we requested the contractor if he could go back to the village and just give him a funeral which he deserves they told us you are one man short so work harder and fill up for this man oh my god so it's it's really insane the kind of stories you hear mm-hmm. in the field or the experiences that they go through are harrowing so parents mm-hmm. understandably they want their kids to study and to do anything to get out of it a right. lot of times but again they also need the money for survival and for of meeting course. different needs so uh, and in short term migration what happens is they are given partially the money and they know that they will get the money up front when they migrate mm-hmm. so imagine when you know that you need money and you get it paid in cash right 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 so i asked it why not narega like you will mm, get yeah. paid and it's much like you can work from here so yeah. they said look we don't know if we'll get work or get paid but if i need money migration is the way to go is it okay and yeah, that's so because them, uh, manrega is like because the pay is so low is that why they prefer migration so narega i think they are not sure if they'll get work or when they will right. get paid because of the delay Delays. migration okay. they get paid up front and a lot of right. cash like imagine 30000 per person in the family mm, so it's yeah. a lot of money in that area Absolutely. As a result, yeah, they choose to go because if they need money for something, they'll just go. Right, right. Understood. Okay. Um. So, um, another point that I sort of wanted to, uh, you know, understand a little bit more, actually, from a sort of policy perspective. So, you mentioned that, uh, when you're migrating from one state to another state, this language, the the medium of instruction, then becomes a challenge. And uh, when I remember when I was working in uh, Ahmedabad, we would see that where we had. Uh, a lot of migrant communities coming from i think specifically andhra pradesh and tamil nadu into sort of uh, urban amdabad uh, for work in like their sort of industrial area there um and we did encounter a few schools that had sort of telugu medium schools and things like that right for these students because it had been sort of established over a few years that there is a demand for a school with this medium of instruction um unfortunately we didn't actually get to study that model and you know at what point of time the state sort of recognized this as a need and where these teachers came from so maybe it was the model that you are talking about where the teachers came with the migrants itself or something like that um but 
from a sort of policy perspective, um, one, is there a way for, um, you know, households to make this demand clear to the state, right? Is that something that's guaranteed under the sort of law or something like that, where um, households can sort of go to the ward councillor or, you know, something of the area in which they migrate uh, to sort of ask for this, right? So that, that's my first question. Um, the second question, which is somewhat related, is that, you um, Again, in our experience, uh, we, we were sort of helping parents with um, admission under Section 121C of the Right to Education Act. And we found that for the migrants, um, the income certificate, for example, that they did or didn't have, or sometimes their ID proof as well, didn't allow them to be eligible for the same entitlements or benefits in the new state that they were in, right? And these were sometimes parents who had said that maybe not short-term migrants, maybe they had they had migrated for a longer period of time. So this isn't exactly related to uh, what we were discussing just now. Uh, but we basically found that where your ID is created and then your access to a lot of entitlements and benefits, whether for the student or for the household, so even in terms of ration cards and things like that, became a problem for these households, right? So is this, um, both these questions, sorry, but do you see some sort of uh, need for policy reform here? Or do you think it's more a question of maybe greater awareness amongst the uh, migrant population about what they can do to sort of avail the benefits that should be accessible to them? Thanks for the question, Nisha. I'll just answer to the best of my knowledge, okay? Because I think for a lot of short-term migrants, since they come back, right? Yeah. Uh, some parts of it might not completely hold for them. Yeah. The second part, which completely throws people off the game, is that they go to different places each year. Yeah, correct. So, you know, where do you bargain? And then I ask yeah. this question that can, do you have a bargaining opportunity with a contractor? Mm. Right? Because when you're recruited, when you're getting paid, can you ask them? That, you know, at least I need a school. So promise me a school for my kid. Yeah. So this person said, look, we are so easily replaceable. You don't yeah. bargain. You need the money. Yeah. So you just go anyway and you wish there is something. But mm -hmm. you don't know that there will be something. So here, then the alternatives have a hostel in your village. Leave your mm -hmm. child in the village. Mm -hmm. Right? So at least you can guarantee a school. So I think the mm -hmm. bargaining power there, uh, there was not much in terms of the contractor. So they had to go wherever they were taken mm. and uh, as I meant as they were mentioning so I'm just speaking on their behalf is the supply is too high yeah so yeah. you don't want to get replaced but then there were some people who have been migrating for a while they kind of understand where the schools are and where they aren't okay okay so I think with experience and if they speak with each other maybe they'll have some sense but I won't say they have a lot of power here Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, there are local civil society organizations. Lokdrishti is one that hmm. works in Odisha. So they have a lot of these awareness sessions before the migrants go out for hmm. the parents to understand what they're getting into, what they can do for the children, where they can leave the children behind. And they do a lot of uh, surveys to understand how many children will get left behind this year right. or how many are about to go. So can you convince the parents to leave them behind in the hostels? Right. And then there's a continuous checkup of what's going. And mm. when the children are here, it's not like they're completely uh, disengaged from the parents. Mm -hmm. There are also some amount of money that's kept so that the children can speak over phone and stay connected to the parent. Right. right? But from the bargaining power, I think for short-term migrants is very limited because there are still cases, a lot of cases of bonded labor, which is not legal. Yeah. But the migrants finally call saying, look, there is no record. Yeah. And the contractor is just telling us that we have not done enough. 
but we believe we have done more than enough there is right. absolutely no record now what do we do yeah get us out of here so i think with more bargaining power maybe mm. all these would get out for the first thing right and then moving on to like to the basics of housing and school education so when covid sort of happened now coming to you know what the situation has been over the last 2 years um we of course all saw sort of how the migration crisis unfolded right and we had families who were stuck in cities um without any sort of resources because contractors stopped paying them even uh they might not have had a place to live many of them were living on site which is also usually the case but they have some basic sort of resources available to them um and then a lot of them sort of started walking back on foot as well and um i mean apart from the fact that it was incredibly horrifying and we saw that there were so many children that were also a part of this right and were like walking you know kilometers and kilometers to get back to their uh villages do you think um or have you been able to speak to some of these families uh, do you think this has sort of changed the way they might consider migration um you know has it has it changed the way in which they take up these kinds of jobs or or the decision of whether they leave the child behind and things like this do you think covid has changed some of this for the long term or do you feel like it's sort of come back to where it was because of unfortunately you know them being forced into needing this money essentially I think for the short term migrants it's still the need driving it mm. but for taking the kids let me tell you what's going on there because mm. there you'll understand the worst part of it mm. in 2020 when we all saw in the media the parents were some stuck somewhere mm. the hostels were still running in the villages right right and then the news came that all the schools had to be shut because of the lockdown yeah so the parents were just told take your kids from the hostel but the parents are not there in the village who will right. take kids from the hostels right. but the hostels had to be shut so it was a major problem where either they were staying with the relatives or some way but they had to get out of the hostels mm-hmm. and the next year now these migrants are not you know migrating by choice they really need the money yeah so they yeah. need a way to work and then the demand was still there for the migrants to go and supplies of course very high in the source yeah. villages yet the schools are closed the hostels are closed and there is no way a hostel would be open yeah even kids who are not migrated earlier a major chunk migrated with their parents oh god okay and now there are no schools in the destination region as well the de- yeah. schools in the source villages are closed so a lot of migration happened so there was mm. a lot of local advocacy in terms of open the hostels so the next yeah. time when the schools opened the rules for hostels or the regulations there were still not in place so the okay. schools were open but the parents still knew that if they had a little choice they would have left them behind but they don't have any if everyone in the family is migrating mm. so luckily in 2020 late in 2022 i think the uh, hostels and everything started opening but then if the parents had already out migrated mm. then they couldn't leave the children behind mm-hmm. and there was a lot of confusion there so i would say that the uh, adult migration was still happening the child right. migration might have shot up due to pandemic okay. but the kids might have seen a side the parents might not have wanted to take them there mm. okay so education wise i think it's a school being closed hostels being closed plus maybe schools being open hostels still being closed and then education took a major hit for these families but the parents still had to go now right. the hostels are again back Okay. Okay. So hopefully, yeah, like after a lot of advocacy, bringing this uh, out in the open, because mm. as I mentioned, the 
kind of research or attention that this group gets is very low yeah. you know schools getting closed is a major thing mm-hmm. so everyone from everywhere is can put a force and there can be advocacy on it but yeah. when we're talking about like little groups which get missed out it's very difficult to uh, get everyone to focus there and say that look this is very important yeah. and what you're doing is like a long term thing because a lot of kids uh, i mean first of all there is a psychological shock of staying then there are there are too many accidents that happen in mm. the migration zone like when they are yeah. out migrating in the destination region like i saw a kid's leg completely half charred because the kid fell on the fire okay i heard of instances where the mother lost her child because of miscarriage because she was still lifting heavy bricks and she couldn't yeah. help it yeah. there are too many accidents that happen it's a long term shock Right. I even met a kid who said that uh, he had gone with his parents and he was going to school, mm. and then one day his dad just got up and left. Mm. So, and then there were one man short. So as a result, yeah. he has to work. Okay, right. and uh, there were even families that came back and they were been hiding since because they're not supposed to come back. They told that it was extremely hard for us to survive, so mm. we just ran away. And we know they're searching for us. Oh God! Okay, okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of psychological cost that gets carried over time. Mm-hmm. So, education-wise and even migration-wise, yeah, I wish they could find some alternate here. So maybe some families could, but a lot of families still out migrated, and now the hostels are back. Hopefully, the children will again find at least a space. Like parents should have a choice to decide what they want to do with the kids. Right, right. So I mean, that's honestly. astounding to hear that the hostels were shut overnight but also not surprising at all i guess right because i think there's a huge case to be made here um for the sort of power of decentralized decision making when it comes to things like this because with covid we saw this being a huge problem where we were i mean of course it was a pandemic we like we've never experienced anything like this and everyone was in sort of panic mode but you had decisions being made at the sort of you know central level um that had a bearing on hostels that are located in a village that maybe hadn't seen a single case of covid yet right and exactly this was a huge problem and i mean the same thing with like reopening of schools and ultimately it like in individual villages they started making decisions at the level of the panchayat or you know the ward or whatever it was the block uh, to say that you know what we're not being affected by this pandemic but there are all these other problems that you're creating and so now we're just going to do hybrid schools whether or not you're allowing us to right so maybe there's a need especially when we think about this from the perspective of future crises or even things like um you know like climate change and things like that and i i guess orissa would be a good example yeah. for a place where that becomes a huge crisis right um but yeah so maybe there's a need to think about sort of decentralized decision making when it comes to specifically these kinds of resources for migrant families right and protecting their sort of children from needing to be moved around and things like that i was also in a hostel during my phd uh, mm. when covid hit like mm. imagine all of us got this notice saying hostels are getting closed but we are all very privileged adults yeah right so we can actually book tickets and go back home it's yeah uh, i got stuck by that's a different story but we could go back home right right yeah uh, but then there this kids you just saying that you know hostel is getting closed and the parents are not here where do these kids go yeah and literally just yeah you just can put like something on everyone mm. and decide 
you decide for everyone that is going to be okay because yeah. you're just stopping everyone from virus because much later i was speaking to the people in the village i'm still in touch with a few of them mm. and they were saying that we don't know what's happening it's just everything is closed because the cases were not high there yeah like, exactly after it's open and people were okay but they were just mm. given these things to do because people in the urban region were suffering a lot yeah, but then the yeah. rural area was still kind of not able to understand what's happening yeah, and there are parents who are you know like finally reaching and there are kids who are waiting like everyone's scared everyone's panicking and now yeah. imagine a parent and a child separated in this region you can't even understand for how long because every vehicle has stopped yeah exactly there's no guarantee on how long the situation would continue at that point yeah but what's scary is what if this was to happen again yeah would yeah the same thing happen again you know because people might still not be very cognizant of the fact that these groups were actually excluded to even a more higher way than they were earlier yeah yeah absolutely so, i no, hope I think that's not a, yeah that's that's a really important point and i think one of the reasons why maybe starting discussions like this but also taking this forward to people who actually make these decisions right i think there's so much need to sort of identify these unique challenges and like you said this is not a small population we can't you know turn away and be like no it's a very small group of people one is even so even if it were a very small group of people it's not all right right for this kind of crisis to um happen and to sort of repeat itself uh, but it is also an extremely large population and we do need to have maybe more sustainable measures um and like to really document what we've learned of this migration crisis during covid right and to ensure that nothing like this i mean we don't sort of make these same mistakes again um so if i could sort of ask you a slightly different question from here like you said there's been a lot of research during covid on edtech right and the way that ed- edtech sort of like blew up during that for obvious reasons um it has both good and bad sides to it and as we all know the digital divide became a huge point of sort of contention um but we still see that we are talking about hybrid models of education going forward as a way to deal with a lot of um you know situations where students can't access physical schools right or can't access um uh, subject teachers for example where there is shortage of different types of resources um in their sort of schools that they can physically access um so do you see any possibility of um edtech filling in some of the gaps that migrant children specifically face um obviously you know assuming that we have to jump through a lot of other hurdles to sort of get them access to internet and uh, smartphones and all of that but given that they're often moving into um maybe urban spaces where digital infrastructure such as the internet is more accessible do you think that edtech has any sort of role to possibly play in the long term for these households yeah uh i've actually thought about this question because when i was thinking i was interested in the children from migrant families yeah and post phd i've been working with the uh, iit bombay on this project called edtech tulna mm, where we yes. are looking at quality of the uh learning softwares right mm. and just to think that can these two come together does it fit because when i went to the villages they didn't even have smartphones yes okay so like a very a very few of the people i met actually had smartphones so doing this in the villages i don't think it's uh, possible right mm. now but mm. as you rightly mentioned they're moving to the urban centers right which might have more access and yeah. given that every kid is looking uh, at a different learning trajectory 
has a, had a different history understands a different language yeah. i think it's very difficult for human beings to directly intervene wherever they go mm. so very very hypothetically okay uh, like no one should do anything based on what i'm saying but from <laughs> my limited understanding there is a software called personalized adaptive learning right so these solutions actually cater to the child's individual need individual performance and then right. recommends where the child needs to go next sort of like a uh, mind spark was uh, one of yeah, the yeah personalized yeah personalized adaptive learning exactly okay. so depends on where the child is the system adapts because right. again if i think of a digital classroom solution where everyone is watching the same content mm. and imagining that classroom that the children mention right like one room with every kid of every age group Mm-mm-mm. you can't show one thing on the screen that goes sure. to everyone yeah but then pal requires like individual hardware yeah. which is very costly yes and since the group moves it's not like you give one to them and they can just follow through correct so uh, but i think pal is something that has a potential of teaching at the right level which has mm-hmm. a major research going around it again where the children can learn in the language that they are comfortable with because technology can do it in a way that human beings are very limited like i can't speak seven languages and reach two children speaking seven languages of course yeah yeah but technology can do it and i have seen there are scope there but again it's very cost intensive and to be very honest all these technology interventions are good at the starting because but over time due to the uh, depreciation and due to just maintenance things fall through the crack yeah absolutely so, yeah yeah i like with my limited knowledge and i am also a little skeptical because i have seen how this is working right now mm. uh, so initially there's a lot of goodwill and interest and it's very positive in terms of how it mm. starts mm-hmm. but if i think like every year you keep moving it's not like everywhere you will be using the same hardware same software and then you learn for 6 months go away learn in a different mode again come back and learn using technology yeah yeah but it then is a complicated one it's very complicated but then maybe there is some way there is hope here rather right. than you know sitting without a teacher or without anything to do right the next best yeah yeah exactly um but that i mean you do raise an important point one is in terms of sort of access to the tech itself right and like i said during covid of course the this entire question of the digital divide and that kind of exacerbating inequalities became a huge point uh, for us to take note of and specifically the most like vulnerable uh, groups of children whether in terms of you know like economic background but also we saw that there was a gender divide in access to technology as well right and that became a huge challenge um so i think you'd also written a paper that was sort of related to access to technology mm-hmm. this was pre covid yeah. this the uh, was it nsso itself yes you? yes yes right yes. right yeah so because it was an interesting thing for us in the compilation of studies that we did um we sort of found that when it came to gender there was slightly mixed results so we did see um some evidence i think from urban chennai if i'm not wrong uh where uh, girl students sort of had better access to learning materials and things like that than their male counterparts but in all the other cases um you know it, it was the opposite and sort of maybe what we would have expected uh, just based on sort of previous evidence um but yeah so i think there is also something to say there when it comes to tech being a slightly 
uh, double-edged sword, right? Where it maybe can also help us fill some of these gaps um, or it can maybe just, you know, exacerbate inequalities in a way that we're not able to help students then catch up. Um, so would you like to tell us a little bit about that paper and sort of what the data said? Sure. So as you uh, rightly mentioned, this was using a pre-pandemic data. So the yeah. National Sample Survey Organization, Survey of Education, 2017-18. Mm. So there, what I found, I did find the gender divide present, but just in terms of uh, access. Hmm. But a bigger question remained about, imagine you have a mobile in your family. Hmm. Who uses it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or as we have seen a lot of things uh, like during our edtech interventions, is that if there is one phone, the dad who might be working might be just taking with him. Yeah. Okay. Coming back at night and maybe one of the kids gets it. Hmm. So there is one thing and uh, you're right. The paper uh, based on Tamil Nadu actually found the... Uh, like divide in favor of girls but again yeah. i think after post pandemic like uh, the as the asar reports mentioned mm -hmm. the uptake has been much higher in the families because they wanted to provide a phone for the child to learn yeah so i think the access numbers uh no i don't think i mean i'm sure based on the reports that the access numbers have gone up right but the discrepancy still remains i think that study found in favor of girls but in a lot of cases yeah actually the opposite uh who gets to use it and how i'll just draw a parallel of this in terms of uh, something else that i observed in the field in odisha mm -hmm. every kid was supposed to get eggs mm. in the schools right pure mm. midday meal they have some social custom in which the girls uh, take an oath for their male siblings for which they won't be eating eggs so now the eggs like girls don't eat eggs although the eggs are given to every kid okay similarly if i think here like having a mobile phone and maybe you just know that your brother is supposed to get it yeah yeah you know so in a lot of cases the social norms and structures might uh, decide what's happening and what i found interesting in the paper as well there was one more paper that you cited which looked at the learning time yeah and they found that the learning time was not very different it's mm. also interesting that time use data 2019 this is also by nsso mm -hmm. they also found that conditional on participation the time spent by children were very close in rural india actually it was the same okay. for 27 minutes in school mm -hmm. because people going to schools have increased so conditional being in school you spend the same time mm -hmm. but as the paper rightly mentioned that what happens outside of school absolutely During pandemic maybe the girls were asked to stay in yeah you know, don't go out and play stay in yeah. so once you are inside you might just be sitting more with the device that you have because what else will you do right yes as a result i think the components that they're measuring either it's access mm. or more specifically who gets to use it mm. uh, and then the learning time this will create like a mixed evidence of what's happening right 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 so uh, it it actually reminds me of a, a slightly different not related to gender but more like um caste-based sort of disadvantage when it came to access to tech so um a few years ago i was uh, sort of working in on a completely different non-education related project in rural rajasthan and the village had like an area that was sort of for the st members there was a school in the mm -hmm. middle and then an area for the higher uh caste like i mean sorry upper caste rajput families and uh, technology and like network was very poor there uh, but to sort of circumvent that they had started like a small center in one of the Rajput houses with a computer um, and the idea was that children could sort of come in there they could take printouts of things they could learn to use the computer 
but then because it was in the house of a Rajput member, the children from the ST community weren't you know, allowed to sort of access it as freely or as frequently. And it had to be something that was almost supervised by uh, the panchayat at that point of time and things like that. And so even when we talk about like use of technology and especially in, you know, hybrid modes, a lot of people started doing in a lot of villages, these sort of community classrooms where you had tabs and things like that. But I feel like there's so many of these um, unfortunately invisible or less understood sort of social norms that just mean that the children who are already disadvantaged are still going to be in some sense left behind um, or not able to access some of these resources, right? So I think that's also like a really important piece to kind of remember when we're talking about using something like tech um, in terms yeah. of who uses it, yeah, and who's able to Absolutely. use it. Absolutely. Uh, just you reminded me of a few research papers that I was going through. It's very interesting. Initially in villages, there was one school and every mm -hmm. kid went to the school. So even during my experiences, uh, the villages had one school each. Mm -hmm. So every kid in the village was going there. Mm. But now within a lot of villages, a second or a third school is coming up, maybe low income private schools. Mm -hmm. And this years of work of getting every kid to start eating together to remove this caste based uh, yeah. division, it's resurfacing again, mm. because again, the parents are kind of self selecting into who was where. Yeah, so imagine very similar to what you mentioned with the Rajput and the other community. Mm. If like, imagine one school where all the uh, like one group of kids go and the parents decide to install something there because they might yeah. be a little better to do. Yeah. So in the same village, you're again kind of reinforcing the same divisions and the norms and the access. Yeah. And it's increasing again. So there's a lot of research going around, like some research going around in this area. And it's very interesting, but also very sad as to yeah. where we are headed again. Yeah, very disheartening. Yeah, I think we also actually saw a very similar thing. As you might know, Ahmedabad is on uh, I mean very very segregated for an urban space and on like sort of religious lines right um, and we saw like a very similar thing happening where in like a one kilometer radius there were about five schools Lofi and uh, Lofi private and government and you literally could you know I mean of course based on medium of instruction you could say okay Urdu medium schools had these students going there but then even just the government schools in Gujarati medium were separated by um, essentially caste and subcaste even, which was just ridiculous. But I would love to, you know, read these papers that you're talking about because it's one of those areas that really interests me and uh, also upsets me highly. Yeah, if I can add, thing. Nisha, yes. uh, when I was a Teach for India fellow, my school had seven schools running in it. Okay. So mm. I'll just say it was an extremely overcrowded school. It was in Pune, mm. starting with Balwadi. Then there was mm. Urdu medium boys, Urdu medium girls, mm. Marathi medium boys, Marathi medium girls, English medium co-ed. Uh, and then there was a secondary school called I teach, uh, I teach school. Okay. So there were seven schools going on during different shifts and there were seven principals. So you just couldn't take one decision. Wow. For example, I was trying to do this basic thing of closing the school main gate when the kids are inside. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it becomes so complicated because there were seven principals with different ideas. And just again about the crowd who came in, because I would see there were people coming in the school who I couldn't figure out why that person was in there for. Absolutely. Okay, it's very yeah. risky. But then there, if there are so many schools, you don't know what's happening. Yeah. But then, and right next to this government school was a private school. And then a kid from my class came and told me that, you know what, this kid told me, and 
okay everyone was coming from the same slum behind the school yeah correct okay like the same community was catering to both the schools and all the uh, divisions as well mm-hmm. and interestingly you would see the uh, separation within a family as well the brother mm-hmm. might be going to the covid english school the right. sister in the same family was going to urdu medium girls correct and i asked the parent like why are you doing this because both of them are free yeah you could have just put your kid here so there are so many norms and individual family uh, fixed effects that are affecting this decision of which kid goes where yeah. but uh, i rightly understand when you were saying this cluster of school and who's going where and this divisions are again becoming very like too much as the low income private schools are mushrooming in india yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i think uh, uh, the study that we did as well found a lot of exactly this right where the girl goes and where the boy goes from the same household itself mm-hmm. we do know that you know girls more likely to go to government schools but even in terms of medium of instruction in terms of so many of these other things yeah <laughs> um okay so i i know i have taken up a lot of your time as well so maybe i'll just try to bring the conversation back a little bit to you know the the larger question of migrant children but also of um out of school children um and so i sort of wanted to ask you based on everything that we've spoken about and you know all the work you've sort of done in this area in terms of access to schooling and who drops out and why they drop out um along this sort of you know whether they're migrant households or not um what do you think the state should sort of be prioritizing um when it comes to this problem of osc and this can be in the context of maybe some of the newer challenges that have come up because of covid-19 um or like you know you mentioned uh, the the bit on hostels something that isn't maybe advocated for or studied as much uh, but where do you think the state should sort of prioritize uh, their energy when it comes to children having dropped out and specifically migrant children sure one thing is just in terms of understanding who's moving where and i'll give you two instances here mm-hmm. uh, blue kudrishti maintains their registers every year noting down everyone who left mm-hmm. the date where to and once they come back and if they have something empty that's when they try to reach that family you know like you were supposed to come back and you haven't mm-hmm. what happened there mm-hmm. so this is one way of a but it's there in handwritten registers for many years but uh, you know it's also difficult to digitize it in terms of just some of the registers are very old right now yeah. and the, just because of the paper etc in maharashtra in the saral mode they have associated every kid to an id number and mm-hmm. what this is as soon as you that that kid is going to a different school the principal of the first school is supposed to say that i have given tc okay and some school somewhere some principal when the kid comes in is supposed to note that this kid is here okay so this is a way for them to note if the kids are just you know out of the school system or they right. have moved and where exactly right. and for the way to track this movement so i think the first point that i would say is just understanding who's going where yes and then building this awareness sessions more often i would actually encourage working with the local civil society organization because they mm. have a lot more knowledge and community power and they're very close to the community to understand mm-hmm. to speak up right because uh as you mentioned before the decentralized decision comes very useful here rather than a state dictating that this is what needs to be done have the districts and have the blocks decide what needs to be done for the specific block to reach meet their needs right so i would say decentralized decision making with a little more data available for the academics also to start working start finding out ways and then collaborating with the civil society organizations and mm-hmm. the school management committee members because they have the most knowledge and the best knowledge about the workings of the school right 
And so your suggestion would sort of be for intervention for migrant households in terms of whether it's tracking or otherwise to sort of happen at the source village or when they, you know, come where they usually migrate to because they also migrate to different places, you said, right? Yeah, so I would say source because of this, because there is no yeah. one way in which you can reach them once they go there. Right. So have it in a source village, even in terms of tracking, like let's say I'm going to village A, yeah. but sometimes they'll just tell you the city. Right. They can't tell you where exactly in the city. Correct, yeah. Okay, and there were people when I went for the, uh, like for the survey, they told me you have come so long, I mean, if you come so far for this. So I told them that, you know what, you go very far for it. Like yeah. you also go to work. They were like, yeah, that's true. But then, you know, we are just taken. Hmm. So like, we just go with the group. So they might not even be able to tell you the specific area where they have migrated to. Right. But in the source village, I think that's the best part to hmm. get hold of them because they also come back. Like yeah. a recall method, once you come back of what happened. Right. And then if possible, figuring out who are the contractors that are actually at least adhering to human rights. Yeah. And then who are just, you know, bypassing it. Right, absolutely. Having an understanding, because I think it's the source where we can work the most for short-term migrant members. Mm -hmm. But to be very honest, maybe the implementation partners on the ground could differ with me because they have much more knowledge. I'm just mentioning from what I have seen and observed. Right, right. No, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think just based on what you explained to us, it seems like that would sort of be uh, the logical sort of step. But then I think this this point about sort of... um, maybe there needs to be regulation of contractors, right? And I, in the uh, places where these households ultimately migrate, because we do know there is sort of repeated migration, even if it's not the same households, um, especially, for example, with like brick kilns and, you know, workers mm-hmm. that work in those types of areas. We do know migrants come in uh, every year, even if they're from different places and different yeah. villages. Um, but yeah, so that, that sort of crackdown on human rights violations uh, when it comes to the actual contractors is maybe another area where the state can intervene, right? And has previously as well, even like yeah. rules about sort of creches on construction sites and mm-hmm. toilets on construction sites, maternity benefits, things like this have come in over time. But of course, there are so many, so many issues with the actual implementation of all of this and, you know, ways in which contractors sort of bypass a lot of this. Um, but okay, noted that that's very useful. Um, and my sort of last question for you is, um, you know, during COVID-19, there were so many of us researchers, practitioners, like people who've sort of been in this space for some time. And I mean, I will at least speak for myself personally. I found myself in a position of extreme sort of helplessness as someone who's in the sector, who's extremely passionate, who, you know, even has contacts with a lot of households that maybe we've worked with before, collected data from before. Um, But I found myself in a position where I was like, I'm stuck at home. I have no idea what to do uh, with this skill set that I have, right? Um, So, just a sort of maybe more personal question for you, but do you feel like in some way we maybe dropped the ball or could have done something more when the crisis sort of hit? Um, again, you know, unfortunately, I'm thinking of it in a sort of future um, scenario where these types of, I hope never the same type of pandemic, but sort of shorter crises do keep occurring again with like climate change and, you know, um, other sort of health situations. So do you think there's more that we could have done as people who've been in this space for some some number of years? I had the same feeling of helplessness, as you mentioned, because I think all of us were in a zone where we wanted to reach out, but also there were regulations and we were so new to the virus. We also didn't know if we would survive if we went out. Absolutely. 
and there were strict rules and there were police everywhere it's not like it's not easy to go reach out hmm. and just call and understand what's happening so i think it could have been like in hindsight now that i know what has happened maybe i would say that the first wave wasn't like the second wave yeah right and it was scary the second wave but then maybe we could have done more but to be very honest i think that collective at that point of crisis when everything is shut down and kind of everyone is operating from their home only in the villages did i realize were people still walking around yeah. so we're just not yeah. able to understand what's happening hmm. so i think just a local contact maybe could have helped but to be very honest helplessness was the overpowering feeling for me as well yeah. especially because i was working with the short term migrant mingwa families before right right and i was working on my thesis and i was also stuck i couldn't go home and i was yeah. thinking what is this like we were supposed to do something when the need arose how can i also get stranded watching the tv and knowing from the tv what's happening and then just there were so many fundraising and just maybe contributing funds but mm. not knowing exactly whether fund is getting spent or who right. is getting it how is it working right right so i think we could have done better but if i had to pinpoint yeah i'm not exactly sure where i would have fit at the, at that specific time right no absolutely i think it's um it's sort of that question that i've been asking myself of you know when we work in this area and we meet so many people and try to understand what their challenges are with educational access in a time of crises what is the role that we can play if at all right and and i mean maybe the answer to that question is it's not our skill set and unfortunately maybe there isn't a role we can play uh, but i think some of these you know points that you've brought up during this discussion specifically the the piece on hostels closing overnight is something that's just like sitting with me because i think it's one of the points that i absolutely had no idea about right um and i feel like maybe that could be something that we sort of keep in mind that maybe sometimes we uncover these things um you know through our research previously and maybe those are the things that we need to sort of suddenly start advocating for in such a big way um because i mean i'm i'm very surprised that i hadn't heard of that until now and i'm sure it was covered somewhere that this was happening um yeah somewhere yeah. but you understand it's odisha again local yeah. odisha so the mainstream media might be more curious about every migrant walking back yeah but this very correct. specific instance in the villages might like you have to really google with the specific keywords to find right. out that's the extent to which i'm saying you need to google yeah. or you might need to stay in those villages or you know be in right. constant touch with someone right right so, right yeah. yeah i think to be very honest sometimes i think in the first wave i was also living through other people who were mm. actually who could go out and help or work in the community yes a lot yeah, of people in india alums they were doing it yeah. so you know kind of living through them yeah 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 and then the second wave is just finding out yeah. hospital beds and just you know being on the phone trying the best to do what we Correct. can Correct. but as you said uh, i am not sure if i have the greater skill set to actually go reach out maybe mm. uh, to be very honest maybe my academic side actually tells me like you know do it advocate at the right places at least get things done mm. and then like advocate for the hostels to open figure out what's happening and uh, not just you know collect data come back write your paper and then mm-hmm. forget about it and live live happily ever after right i think that's what as an academic i think my role is to just you know remember go back reconnect and stay yeah. in touch yeah that's a really good point and i think something is um 
maybe because we're both in that sort of um, you know econ space where we do do some amount of like primary data collection and we end up like going to the field and making connections with people you know during our research and then sometimes we have to I mean um, the way we're trained is to sort of walk away write about it and then you know publishing the paper is the sort of end goal right and very rarely do we come across workspaces that actually encourage us to take that research back or do something with it beyond that that's often not in our sort of incentive system. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I feel very, very sort of similar to exactly what you are saying as well. Um, but okay, so th that's sort of the, um, you know, the end of the questions I had. Um, is there anything else that, you know, you'd like to talk about or anything that I might have missed out on? Uh, I think we have covered most of it, but it's very good to know that you are in a space where you're actually connecting and you are going back and working with the people as well. Like you are in touch with a lot of knowledge that's on the field. Because I feel in a lot of cases in econ, you can even bypass that. Right. It's not the best thing to be in, right? Like once you get data, you work on it, but then collecting your own and going and making connections. Because once we make connections with the people is when we actually feel for the topic, right? Not just think yeah. of it as our next publication, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to be clear, this is, I don't know if I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm one of the people who actually is able to go back enough. It's, I think, just something that I've recognized as being extremely important. So I, I feel like that's hopefully the next step that we can take as, as sort of researchers. Yeah. I wouldn't want to say that I'm doing it well enough at all or at all. Yeah. But um, I think only when you start working with primary data, you start getting this feeling of not doing yeah. anything. Like if you do not do primary data, you might not feel anything at all. That is also very true. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay, so I mean, and anything else? So uh, any other questions you might have for us or anything like that? Uh, I think we've covered most of it. Yeah, so okay. thanks for putting up the report. Hopefully the working paper will come soon, but you can put the report up it's very interesting and you've synthesized the study very well okay. so thank you so much congratulations <laughs> to you and your team thank you thank you so much and we greatly appreciate your your feedback and comments on that and of course this discussion i feel like again uh, you know one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because you very rightly pointed out to us even when you read the report that evidence on uh, migrant children specifically and their access to education there is a sense of apathy or maybe not apathy but just complexity that prevents us as researchers from really diving into it and there are very few people that I think um, have been sort of studying it in as much detail and you know documenting some of this and even in our synthesis you saw there were so few studies out of like 72 studies that happened on education on COVID I mean I think only two if I'm not wrong had anything to say about the migrant population right and that I think speaks for itself in terms of the dearth of sort of data and evidence on yeah. this like yeah. you can take a 20 year period as well not just yeah. COVID COVID is two you take 20 and you will figure that most of the studies, number of studies are very few, but in what that remains, they are based on primary data because the secondary thing is almost non-existent, very less. Right. Only 2007-8 NSSO's data give some information. So a lot of papers were written then. Right. And right. in 2013, some papers were written then. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's very less in terms of the attention and I would say it's also kind of helplessness for a lot of quantitative economists. Yeah, for sure. Might not have the bandwidth to go to the field and Absolutely. collect data. But then I think the other advocacy that people do, the researchers, is just, you know, incorporate data. It's not that hard. Yeah. Like put yeah. one question, figure out yeah. where they're coming from. Yeah, no, I was, you are I was collecting. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say because um, 
I think from firstly, the data sets that we have available to us in the Indian context are quite limited. But then when you sort of miss out on these key populations, so I think with like CMIE sort of gives you that option to add in certain questions. Uh, but again, you need to have the resources to be able to do that. Uh, but maybe like advocating with an IHDS or, you know, something there where maybe to add a section. Um, and again, I think like researchers like you who have this experience and understanding of, you know, short term migration and maybe different ways to sort of capture that. Maybe, you know, for you to maybe work with them and sort of add those things in because I mean we we face the same problem with children with disabilities for example yeah. where a lot of researchers either don't collect that data or don't end up using the data because it ends up being a very small part of the sample right and they don't know sort of what to do you can't make it a subgroup you can't analyze it independently and especially with quantitative you're limited by you know uh, by that sample size ultimately so maybe there's also scope for us as researchers to try and you know advocate for these big data sets actually incorporating uh, these key sort of questions on these populations that are otherwise very very understudied and marginalized right at least to create that info that knowledge somewhere um, yeah absolutely so ihds2 has a question about migrants like a small okay. section so hmm. hopefully if IHDS3 follows the same pattern, then we right. might have a little more insight. Mm -hmm. uh, but you are absolutely right. Like advocating for incorporating maybe one or two questions in the survey goes a long way in terms of the research attention that this group can get. And finally, like their rights can be brought forward. Right, absolutely. No, that that's that's amazing. I didn't know IHDS2 had that. So okay, that's great. <laughs> Good to know. Okay, great. So I think I've taken up a lot of your time more than I had asked for even. Uh, but I just want to thank you so much for joining us for this and for giving us such incredible feedback on our report. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope we stay in touch and are able to, uh, you know, do something together at some point. Uh, but yeah, it was yeah. really such an interesting conversation. And I feel like I've learned and understood so much, again, of a topic that I genuinely have not, you know, known a lot about before this. So thank you so much. And I, I know that our audience will be extremely, extremely delighted with all the information you've given us today. Thanks, Nisha. And I would like to say that when I was reading your report, I was really enjoying it. And <laughs> given my experience, I just wrote that you know, like this group, I don't see a lot of mention. Yeah. But then while writing, I was in my head thinking that maybe, you know, uh, this is not the focus, this will go out. And then when you wrote the final part, I saw all of it incorporated. <laughs> and that kind of made me happy in the sense that at least there's one more person on one more team who's realizing the need of this group, you know, just being a part of the bigger picture. So yeah. I would say thank you and your team a lot for bringing your focus back and doing this, you know, moving ahead from the report to actually talking to me to hear I would say hear stories about what's happening and I think your personal experiences have added a lot so I learned a lot from you as well about the things that I didn't know for example your example in rural Rajasthan right so just different examples and experiences that we have I think we should keep in touch and yeah, at least keep sure. sharing stories absolutely no I would I would love to do that okay <laughs> thank you thank you so much again Lena. it's been an absolute pleasure this podcast is produced by the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy under the Kota Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Program. The Kota Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Program is a CSR initiative by Kotak Mahindra Bank Limited. This podcast is based and born from Vidhi's report, Clearing the Air, a synthesized mapping of out-of-school children during COVID-19 in India. This report is produced under funding received from Voltas Limited as part of their CSR initiative. 
Video design and editing by Asad Ali. Illustration by Hitesh Sonar.